1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do what is good. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike Osborne. I'm the senior pastor here at UPC. And what we've been doing in recent days is looking into the book of First Peter, from which you just heard that passage read. We've been studying First Peter ever since the Christmas season. Uh, Peter, the apostle, wrote this letter to believers in the first century who were suffering. They were going through a hard time. I've told you before that it was a tough time to be a Christian back in his day. They were facing state-sponsored persecution. And so this letter, First Peter, is about suffering. Last week I preached on the first half of First Peter chapter 4. And today we're going to look at the second half sermon called Suffering Well. So maybe we should start by reminding ourselves what suffering really is. Because some of you are going to hear First Peter 4 and conclude that suffering is something that only a few select elite Christians have to go through. For example, if you're being persecuted for your faith, some people would say, now that's suffering. Or if you're a missionary in Africa living in a place of danger, wondering when terrorists are going to show up and cut off your head. That's, that's suffering, some of you might think. But I like what Elizabeth Elliot has said. She's broadened the definition of suffering to embrace every single uh, Christian who has gone through a hard time. Listen to what her definition is. She says, suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. It's a good definition. Suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. That means that if today you've been praying and hoping and trying for years to have a baby and you finally get pregnant and two months into your pregnancy you have a miscarriage, that's suffering for Christ. If you have cancer, that's suffering for Christ. If you are new in town You're a new kid on the block. You're new in school. You don't have a friend to your name. That's suffering for Christ. If you were a faithful employee, but one day your boss came in and said, because of downsizing, your your position had to be cut. That's suffering 
for Christ. Because see, the issue is not what happens to you. The issue is how you respond to it. John Piper wrote something I think is very helpful. It's going to be up here on the screen. Look at what he wrote one time. He said, in choosing to follow Christ, we choose all that this path includes. Thus, all suffering that comes in the path of obedience is suffering with Christ and for Christ. Whether it's cancer or conflict, all experiences of suffering have this in common They threaten our faith in the goodness of God and they tempt us to leave the path of obedience. He goes on to say, when we speak of the purposes of suffering, we mean both persecution and the accidents and sicknesses that befall us in any path of faith. The Apostle Paul didn't make a distinction between being beaten by rods and having a cold while traveling between towns. For him... All the suffering that befell him while serving Christ was part of the cost of discipleship. What about you? Is there something in your life right now that you don't want? Or are you wanting something that you don't have? If so, you're suffering. And 1 Peter is for you. So today let's do this. Let's look at what... Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19. And look at three things. When you're suffering, these three things we're going to look at and talk about today. Don't be surprised. Second, don't be discouraged. And third, don't be ashamed. So let's dive in and see how Peter develops those three ideas. First of all, he says, when you're suffering, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Look with me at verse 12. The opening verse of this text says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. See, here's the problem. We've been trained to think that God is the one who delivers us from affliction. It's very odd to think of God as the one who brings us affliction, who gives us affliction. He's not the giver of it. He's the deliverer from it, right? We hear so much about God answering our prayers and taking care of us and solving our problems and making us healthy and wealthy and successful and effective that we're surprised when we find out that God is not a ticket to a more comfortable life. See, here's the way we need to look at suffering. It's a gift from God's fatherly hand. It's a gift. Now, that's a really foreign concept for Christians today, particularly evangelicals in suburban America. Some churches even teach their people, I'm sure you know this, that if they're suffering, if they're not living a victorious life, whatever that is, if they're not prospering, they must be in sin. But the Bible tells us otherwise. I shared a verse last week, Philippians 1:29. Let me read it to you again. Paul in Philippians 1.29 says that it has been granted to you, granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. That word granted is the Greek word that, from which we get the word charity. It's a Greek word charis, grace, benevolence. It has been gifted to you, not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for him. Suffering is from the hand of a gracious, sovereign, loving God. And here in our text this morning, Peter says not to think that it's unusual that you're in a hard place. 
It's very common. Don't be shocked because you're right where you're supposed to be. In fact, you should expect to suffer. Just like the Olympic athlete expects that it's going to be a tough race down that slope. Expect it, Christian, that you will suffer. Peter says, don't be surprised at the painful trial that you're experiencing. That phrase, painful trial, let's talk about that. You might want to underline or highlight that phrase. It's one Greek word, purosis. Some of your translations might even say fiery trial instead of painful trial because purosis means fire or furnace or heat. And this is why some of your translations say that. And here is where we're getting to the very heart of why suffering is a gift. Think about metallurgy. Metal ore contains impurities, right? And the only way to get rid of those impurities is to put the metal into a furnace and turn up the heat. Give it fire because fire separates pure from impure metal. The pure can withstand the fire, but the impure cannot. And so that goldsmith or that silversmith puts that ore into the furnace, raises the heat to separate out the dross, to refine that gold, to refine that silver, and to make it truly valuable. And in similar fashion, what Peter is saying is that you and I are often, as believers in Jesus, put through a fiery trial. We're put into the furnace. God takes us through the fire of affliction to separate the pure from the impure, to test our faith, to make it bigger and better and stronger and more resilient. That's why suffering is a gift. That's why you shouldn't be shocked at the fiery trial that you're going through. Parents can understand this perhaps better than anybody. You know this, moms and dads. No parent relishes the thought of seeing his uh, or her daughter or son go through pain. But you also know that your child, if if he or she's going to grow up to be a self-disciplined adult, to work hard, to be responsible, and to be a productive member of society, he or she has to experience pain along the way. You have to, as a parent, get rid of those impurities. So what do you do? You make your child do chores. You tell your son, go mow the lawn. You tell your daughter, go do your homework. You discipline your children when they disobey. It hurts. It's painful, but the result is a good thing. The Bible not only refers to this fiery trial in terms of the metaphor of parenting, but also in terms of the metaphor of being a vine dresser. You know what Jesus talks about in John chapter 15, right? He says there's a vine and there's a branch. And he talks in there about the vine dresser coming along and pruning off those unfruitful branches. And I'm sure that if that branch that the vine dresser prunes or cuts away could talk, the branch would say, leave me alone. Don't do it. It hurts. It hurts to be cut. I don't like that. I'd rather be unfruitful. I'd rather have this dead branch hanging on me. The vine dresser says, no. Jesus says, no. I'm going to prune. I'm going to take and cut away the dross. I'm going to refine you. I want you to experience the fire of affliction. It's my gift to you. I want you to be better. See, your heavenly father loves you too much not to let you avoid suffering. Your heavenly father loves you too much not to allow suffering to come into your life. Hard times perfect you. They build your faith. They separate impure from pure. The real thing from the dross. So that you come out as pure gold. You come out as more valuable. More precious. 
I heard a fellow pastor put it this way. He said, just as you can't refine metal ore without heat, so you can't learn to trust in Jesus unless you go through the fire of suffering. How do you know when you're in the fire? How do you know when you're going through this time of testing, when God is pruning you, when your heavenly parent is disciplining you? How do you know? It's when you have what you don't want. It's when you want what you don't have. See, when you're conscious of being in that place, that's the furnace. You have something you don't want. You don't have something you really do want. See, in that very moment when you're conscious that that's where you're at, it's like you're at a T intersection. And you've got to make a choice. You're going to go one way or the other and make a decision. Will you go to God? Will you do what we've done this morning? Will you go to God and lament? Will you pray to Him? Will you trust Him? Will you hold on to Him for dear life, not knowing where your next step in the darkness is going to be? Or will you decide that God is unfaithful? And the best thing for you to do is fold in on yourself and protect yourself and figure out how you're going to fix it and make your own way in life. One way, the other. Fork in the road, T intersection. The furnace makes you feel, that it makes you make a choice. That's just the way it is. And there's nothing harder in life than that, is there? I think there's nothing harder in life than this. This is what Peter's driving at, by the way, down here in verse 18. When he says, it is hard for the righteous to be saved. Did you stumble over that verse a little bit? It's hard for the righteous to be saved. Now, don't make the mistake. He's not saying that it's hard to get saved. He says it's hard to be saved. It's hard to be a Christian because of the furnace of affliction. It's hard being a Christian. Why? Because the Christian walks the same Calvary road that Jesus Christ had to walk. It's the path of suffering and of hardship. It's like being that branch and getting pruned. It's like being that child and getting disciplined. It's not necessarily, look, don't make the mistake. It's not that sin happens. That's why God disciplines you. Sometimes it's in the absence of your own personal sin. It's not that one-to-one God is punishing you for something you've done. He's taking you through the furnace of affliction because it's something he wants to do to help you get better, to help you grow, to help you be healthy. Suffering, here's what it does. It exposes your idols this, was, this is what makes it so difficult for us. When you're suffering, it exposes, it uncovers what it is you're really trusting in in life. When your idols get exposed through suffering, that's what provokes this crisis of faith. It becomes a defining moment for you. It's painful. You cry out. You lament. That's okay. That's okay. Just lament to God. Just complain to God. Run to Him. Not away from Him. Keep reaching out to God. Receive. Receive the gift of suffering. Do you know what a mendicant is? A mendicant? It's another word for beggar. And somebody named Anonymous one time wrote a poem about a mendicant. Listen to it. I stood a mendicant of God before His royal throne and begged Him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn. 
and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange and hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts. I gave my best to thee. So I took it home. And though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil that hides his face. The furnace of affliction is a good gift. So don't be shocked. Don't be shocked when your father gives you a gift of suffering. That's one thing that it means to suffer well. Don't be surprised. But secondly, what Peter teaches us here is to not be discouraged either. Don't be discouraged when you suffer. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, rejoice. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I thought this past week about that word rejoice. You know, it doesn't mean that you're in right, outright, upright, downright happy all the time. And that is a common way of thinking about rejoicing. You're smiling, you're happy, you're singing these praise songs. Not necessarily. Do you think David was happy when he wrote Psalm 38? Psalm 38 is like Psalm 22 that we read earlier today. It's a psalm of lament. Listen to what David says. Here are a few lines from that psalm. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down upon me. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you, for I am about to fall and my pain is ever with me. See, to rejoice doesn't necessarily mean you're smiling. You might actually be weeping. You're lamenting. Because the word rejoice really means to take delight in something. It's not necessarily this happy emotion. It means this firm conviction and persuasion that something is true. In fact, I looked it up and back in... The Middle Ages, when this word rejoice, English word rejoice came around, it really meant to take possession of something. To take possession of the truth that David is rejoicing in is to take possession of a God who will not leave you when you're suffering. David, is he rejoicing when he says this? Oh Lord, don't forsake me. Be not far from me, oh my God. Come quickly to help me, oh Lord, my Savior. Is that rejoicing? Sure it is. Because what David is doing is he's rejoicing in the midst of his anguish that he has a God who does not abandon him, but who gives him strength and courage to endure. That's rejoicing. So when Peter says in verse 13, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, he means to enjoy the possession of a God who not only stays with you while you suffer, but who actually suffered himself. Don't miss that. Christianity is a religion about a suffering God. That's what makes it totally unique in the world. Jesus Christ is pictured in the Bible as a suffering servant. 
The prophet Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. Surely, says Isaiah, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On the cross, his sufferings were so enormous that he shouted out those words we saw earlier today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That type of suffering is so intense that we call it in our confession of faith that Jesus descended into hell. That's what we mean when we say that line in the Apostles' Creed. That Jesus Christ endured the worst suffering because he endured and absorbed in his own body the wrath of God that our sin deserved. And because Jesus suffered for you, paying the penalty for your sins, dying the death you should have died, releasing you from your guilt and shame, giving you new life and hope and resurrection, you can suffer with a sense of purpose. That's why you can rejoice. Your sufferings are taking you somewhere. Your sufferings are redemptive. You're not only growing here in this life, but you're getting more and more prepared for the next. Your sufferings are redemptive. Question, why does Peter say that you can rejoice in your sufferings? Well, because, according to verse 13, a day is coming when Christ's glory will be revealed. You see that? Christ's glory will be revealed. That's why you can rejoice today in your furnace. And on that day, Jesus will wipe every tear from every Christian eye. And on that day, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain I'm telling you, it was so good to be able to say that to the crowd that was here yesterday for the memorial service. There is coming a day when death, that last enemy, will be thrown into the very lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And you will hear these words if you're in Jesus today. Well done, good and faithful servant. You endured the trial. You walked through the valley of tears. You hung on to me. You lamented. You stayed true even when it really hurt. So don't be surprised when you suffer. And don't be discouraged. Thirdly, the last thing Peter tells us in this chapter is to not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Look at verse 16. He says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. I don't have, as I've told you before, many claims to fame, not a lot of great awards and things like that in my past, but I I keep using this illustration of being on my high school football team because that's one of the few things I can still brag about today. But I was on a championship football team in high school. Our coach was called Paul Love, and we were called, affectionately, the Love Machine. (laughs) Yes. I'm still a member of the love machine. And see, this was the late 60s, early 70s. It was a time of terrible racial tension in the south of the United States. I grew up in South Carolina. And on many high school and college campuses around my hometown, there was racial strife. There were riots my junior year on my high school campus. The National Guard had to come in and maintain order. We were about 50-50 black and white on my high school football team. 
And our coach, Paul Love, called us in when things got really hot one day. And he looked at us, black and white faces together, and said, you guys are the love machine. You're going to have to show this high school how to get along. You're going to have to walk arm in arm, black and white, and hold your head high because you are the love machine. And we did. We were proud of that name. You are a Christian. It was a Roman term of scorn back in the day. You're a little Christ, they said. And Jesus is looking at you and me today and he, say, he says, wear that name with pride. Hold your head high. You are a Christian. And if you suffer for that name, rejoice. Don't be ashamed. Walk arm in arm and suffer well. Act like a Christian, Jesus would say. How does a Christian act? Well, look at verse 19. He says, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Continue to do good. Continue to love. Continue to serve. Continue to be a person of integrity in the midst of your pain. Continue to lament and pray and hope and repent and trust God. That word commit in verse 19 is a pretty important word. That word commit means to make a deposit. If you deposit money in a bank, you're going to deposit it only in a bank you trust. The same is true with God. You're going to only put your hand in the hands of someone whom you trust. And that trustworthy God is our God. Our sovereign, loving, gracious Father. He says, commit yourself to that faithful Father and continue to do good I'm telling you, you can trust this God. I don't care how hot it gets in your furnace. You can trust this God because he sent his son to free you from sin and make you his child. He is that faithful. I've asked uh, my good friend and yours too, Stephanie Ramirez, to share her story of suffering. I felt that it would be a good way to conclude this sermon to let a real-life person who's been in a real-life furnace share a little bit of her story. Thanks, Stephanie. Morning. Well, yep, I'm Stephanie Ramirez, and I've been a member of UPC for about 17 years, long time. And last week when Mike talked about suffering, a member of my life group commented that he thought of me during that sermon, that he thought I had suffered well. And so I wanted to share with you some of the things God's taught me as I've traveled through my own journey of loss and grief. In the book, Grace Disguised, Jerry Sitzer says, the experience of loss becomes the defining moment in our lives where suffering is as inevitable as death. It is how we respond to loss that matters. That response will largely determine the quality, direction, and the impact on our lives. When my husband of 21 years left me and my five children over a year ago, I was devastated. How could this possibly be God's plan? How could God still be good? We are Christians. We're members of this church. Well, the defining moment came in my life for this time of suffering when I answered these questions that this loss did indeed come from God, came through his hands. 
and he was still good, and he was going to be good all the time. I chose to believe it even though I was filled with so much sadness, with fear, and heartache. John 16:33 promises that in this world we would have trouble. Well, here was the biggest trouble I had ever been in. I held on to Hebrews 13:5 that says, Jesus says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Well, I told God that I needed him to be real to me. And if I was going to survive, you know, what light ahead, I was going to be a single mom looking for employment and being alone. Because I had felt great sadness and emptiness, I've learned to be honest with God and people. Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, by prayer with supplication and thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God. Well, I have told God every sad, negative, empathetic thought or feeling I've had. I have poured out my heart to my life group, some of my sweet friends who are here today. Thank you, Carrie, for coming. And, um, and even my mom. And God has loved me through them as they have prayed and cared for me. There are times I had to ask God to help me get through the next hour or to lead me to make a decision I never had to make before. And he's never failed to show up to comfort me and guide me. The Bible has come alive as I've been honest with God and my need for him. God says he will use everything for good in our lives, and suffering produces character. Well, during some past trials, I told God I was done with growing, and I had enough character, and don't bring me any more suffering. I'm sure you've never said that to God, but I did. But this time, I've asked God to use every tear and every fearful, painful, and lonely moment to bring him glory. I've asked him to change me as a result of all of this that has happened in this time of suffering. Some friends, they said they see me as a strong woman, but I see myself as a shattered life that God is piecing back together. I will never be the same as a result of being broken, but God will make something new from my brokenness. He will make something good from all of this for me and even my five kids. In this world, we are all going to have trouble. Some of you might be in some right now. What is yours and what will yours be? Do you believe God is still good? Will you be honest with him? And are you looking for how he is working all this pain out for something better? Larry Crabb says in Shattered Dreams that it's God's desire for us to know with absolute certainty that when life is at its worst, that his presence is real and that he is with us and he cares. I know with certainty that God shows up in our darkest moments to love us with the everlasting love. He is faithful to care for us, and his mercies are new every morning. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. Good story. Do you know the hymn, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go? We've sung that a time or two. I love the third verse of that hymn. Look at it. It's up here on the screen. O joy that seekest me through pain. Think of that. Joy that seekest thee through pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. There's coming a morn. So push on. 
Press on. Commit yourself to your faithful creator. Continue to do good. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. And don't be ashamed. Let's pray. Father, there are folks in and among us today who are right in the very middle of that furnace. Um, we pray for our suffering friends here. Others of us might be out on the periphery. We see it coming. Maybe we've felt like we've had it and, and we're outside it now. But wherever we are on this journey, we pray that we will suffer well. We ask you, O oh Spirit of God, to come alongside us, to equip us, to encourage us in the battle. Help us to remember, to rejoice that we are considered your people, that we are little Christs. May we hunger and thirst after the day, the morn that shall tearless be. And in the meantime, suffer well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.